if you've been here very long at all, you know that one of my hobbies is gardening. And one of the things I love about gardening, actually I don't love, one of the things that's frustrating about gardening is how much it exposes about my own heart. On January 1st, we started planning our garden for this year, knowing full well we can't really plant much of anything until June 1st, six months later, but there's still a lot of excitement. I pull out seed catalogs and magazines. And I read up and I see this stuff. But the, one of the things this last year exposed was how I love starting the garden. I love getting the beds ready. I love planting seeds. I love tending them early on. And then Emma reminds me, you don't really care a whole lot about the harvesting part. You kind of left that to me. I, and I'll say, I, I actually left it to her but I also left it to the mosquitoes this year. I didn't really want anything to do with all those mosquitoes that were out there. So one of my goals this year is to be interested in the gardening all the way up through the harvest and not just leave that whole thing for her. But one of the really painful things that gardening exposes year after year is impatience. I, gardening is one of those things where I will excited every day when I get home from work and go out and see, did anything sprout a new leaf? Did anything bud? Did anything have some fruit or some vegetables? Is there anything growing today? And day after day, I find myself frustrated and impatient as it exposes this, this constant need for, hey, I need progress. I need something to happen. I need something fast. And I wonder if any of you guys are like me. We live in, I would say, well, we live in an instant gratification society, but really, we, that's just the world that we are in, where things don't go fast enough. People get angry. Or I get angry and in a hurry because the checkout line is too long or somebody has too many items. Oh, let me make sure, let me pick the fastest line for me to go in. I remember when I was a, I remember when I was a teenager, my mom one time was passing somebody and then kind of spaced out and stayed in the fast lane for a second. And somebody drove past and held up a sign telling her the, the slow lane is to the right. And I was like, that's a guy who is normally prepared to give that message to people. He's got, a, he's got a pre-made sign that he holds up to drivers that he's unhappy with. And it even happens in the church world. I, I know a pastor who told me, it has taken me a long time to get my church to the, to the point that we need to be at. And then I, I thought about it for a second, and I was like, he's been in his church for less than a year. And he's, he's already talking about 10, 10 months or 11 months is a long time to be a pastor in a place. We all find ourselves in a hurry, thinking in terms of six-week plans, not six months, let alone six years. But, and so that happens in the world, but we also see that in our own lives, really when we're dealing with God. That's just, this is the place that it gets dangerous. This gets, is where it gets to be dangerous when, when we look at God and begin to get impatient with God. God, I've been in conflict with this child for so long. Why can't this, why can't this be changed right now? I've been in conflict with my spouse and it, we need to resolve it right now, in this moment. It has to be fixed right now. Maybe it's an area of healing. We, we look and go, God, why isn't this fixed right now? So how do is it we handle when God seems to be slow about keeping His promises? How do we handle it? If you're like me, dealing with it is things like anger and worry, control and despair. Impatience with God is just something that, if you're like me, you're constantly dealing with. God, why is this taking so long? Today we're going to be looking at a series of stories in 1 Samuel that talk specifically about how do we handle it when, when God is slow? When we're like, God, why can't you just make this faster? The series 
It's called the Battle of the Two Kings. It's David versus Saul. And we've been moving through this quickly. Sometimes it's good to go very, very slowly, verse by verse, one verse at a time, and really chew and digest on a verse. But sometimes it's also good to step back and go, what's the movement here? What's the overall purpose in this? And we can get that by by seeing and looking at several chapters at one time. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 23 to 26. 1 Samuel's chapter 23 to 26. The backstory is that God has God gave the kingdom to Saul as Israel's first king, but Saul turned his back on God time after time doing his own thing. So God rejects Saul, anoints David as the future king, and then there's a long period of Saul remaining king and David waits. David's been waiting for years to become king, and that's where we find in chapter 23. So go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start in verses 1 through 14. 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kaliah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Kaliah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kaliah against the Philistines? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keliah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keliah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keliah. Now Abathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keliah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keliah and said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keliah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keliah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keliah surrender me to him? When Saul, will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keliah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keliah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keliah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness, strongholds, and in the hills of the desert. Day after day, Saul searched for him. But God did not give David into his hands. And we're going to read two more verses. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you will help us, that you will help us learn to see your hand when we are so impatient with what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So at this point, Saul is searching for David and wants to kill him. And in in this part, David's starting out going between Judah and the land of the Philistines on the run from Saul. And so he's actually staying far from Saul, staying in the place that's supposed to protect him, but he's going back and forth on this journey, kind of like a beltway across Israel from the land of Judah over to the land of the Philistines There are some other tribes of Israel in between. And he's basically traveling in a place that he should be protected. These are Saul's enemies. 
These are, this is my family. So David goes and he, he saves the people there of Kaliah. But notice that after he saves these people from the Philistines, he prays and the Lord says, no, these people are going to give you up, David. You've got to keep running. So like you would think that once you save a city from their enemies, that those people would then protect you. But David finds, well, that's not true. And so here he is on the run in between Judah and the land of the Philistines. And then Jonathan comes to him to strengthen his heart in God. Because when you're on the run, the promises of God are far away. Obviously, David was beginning to weaken. and He needed Jonathan to come and help him find strength in God. Jonathan said, do not be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And so Jonathan comes to strengthen David. And we could stop at this point and go, oh, wow, look, that's a great point. But then we see three stories back to back. We see, and each one of them fits together because they're symmetrical. There's these common elements in each of the three stories. If you look at them on their own, you just get this idea that David is a faithful, this faithful future king. But then when you look at them in progression, you see David's got some learning to do. So this is why I want to show you in 20, chapters 24. 25 and 26. So at this point, David is on the run. The Lord sends Saul back to the north. And so then David goes down to the desert of En Gedi, beginning of chapter 24. Then Saul takes 3,000 men to go out after David down here in, these des- in this desert. David and his men are near a place called the Crags of the Wild Goats. And Saul goes to find him. Saul goes to go to the bathroom in a cave. And David and his men are in the backside of the cave. And so, here at the beginning of this story, Saul is unprotected. David has power. And his men say to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when He said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. It says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David hasn't responded to his men. They said, hey, this is the day. The Lord's given him into your hands. David goes up to cut a corner off of Saul's robe. And then verse 5 says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. I always was like, "What's? why is he like, why would David be like conscience-stricken for cutting off a piece of his robe? I thought David was doing something noble because then David turns to his men and says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And we begin to get a picture of what David was really up to when we compare this to the next two stories, which we're going to get to. But here at the beginning, we see this pattern. David has power. His men say, this is the day. And then David creeps up unnoticed, cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. David was actually up to no good in this moment. He, he repents in this moment, but there's a difference for David between knowing what he's supposed to do and actually doing it. And so he starts this by going and trying to take the kingdom by force because God hasn't given it to him yet. But it sure looks like now with David in the front, or I'm with Saul in the front of the cave unprotected, this is the time. And so the call in this section to us is that fear, which is what David is dealing with, is often the thing that motivates our control and impatience. You see, David thinks that the kingdom is slipping away. And right here at the beginning of this, David's fear is driving him to impatience and let me grasp and grab control. And so the call is, will we be ready? 
when, when fear begins to drive us towards impatience, when we begin to go, God, your, your promises are far off. This relationship is going nowhere. My child is running so far from you. Are we going to let fear drive us to impatience and say, no, God, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to grab this promise myself. Because that's what David is doing here. He's cut off a corner of his robe and then his conscience strikes him. Then David says, goes out of the cave, calls out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looks behind him, David bows down, prostrating himself to the ground and says, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? David says, look, this is proof that I don't intend to harm you because I could have. I even cut off part of your robe, but I didn't. And so David says, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Saul weeps aloud and responds, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Skip down. Saul says, I know that you will surely be the king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So here in this story, David realizes, I know the thing that I'm supposed to do, but when I get impatient, I begin grasping at this kingdom. And so, what are you afraid of? Like, if you, like me, deal with impatience with God, what is that fear that says, no, I've got to grasp, I've got to get control, I've got to make this situation happen. I've got to fix this situation. The next story begins to shed new light for David. So David knows what he's supposed to do, but he's struggling with the ability to do it. Chapter 25 is the story of David, Nabal, and Abigail. So David, again, is traveling in the desert. He's far, he's far from his home, traveling in the desert. And while he's in the wilderness, he hears that a, a rich man near him is shearing his sheep. David and his men have protected Nabal and his sheep and his goats and his workers. And so David says, can you repay me by giving me something from this shearing? Can you give me and my men something? Nabal insults him. Nabal means foolish. That's his, his name. I can't imagine what his parents were thinking before he's done anything. Right when he's born, they name him fool. But they, he says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? My, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to the men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every, every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your swords. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So then Nabal's servants go to Abigail, his wife, and they say, your husband is an idiot. Your husband is a fool. Your husband has insulted David, who's protected us, who's taken care of us. David's going to come and he's going to wipe us out because your husband has insulted him. And so here again, we have the same sequence. David is, is in a position of power in the desert over somebody else. and David is about to go on a rampage. The same thing he was about to do with Saul, he's about to do with Nabal here. He's about to go and wipe him out. And so Abigail acts quickly. She takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five says of roasted grain and 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs. Then she tells her servants, 
go ahead, I'll follow you. She doesn't tell her husband. She goes and she bows down before David and apologizes on behalf of her husband. And she says, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. So she apologizes to David, but this is, what she, this is what's so interesting. Then she says, And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging your enemies with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. She says, she draws his attention Not to, hey, this is not going to be good for you. This is what she says. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for you, my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. What Abigail does in this moment is she comes to David and says, David, look at what the Lord is doing and what He's going to do. She she apologizes on behalf of her husband, but most of her speech is spent on, look, the living God is actually at work here, David. It doesn't seem like it, but the Lord is going to do this. Abigail becomes a guide for David, explaining to him, showing him once again, the Lord is a personal God, intimately active in your life, David. Don't take these things into your own hands in impatience. Don't make these things happen. Because you see, if David would do this, then David would not be fit to be king. If David lets his impatience drive him to fear or to fear and to power and to selfishness, he is not going to be fit to be king. And so Abigail says, no, David, look, the Lord is personal and active. The Lord is a warrior who's going to hurl your enemies far away. Don't take this into your own hands. What I think Abigail exposes in David and what she exposes in us is functional atheism. Somebody that says, yes, I believe that the Lord exists and that He's at work, but I think that I'm on my own and I'm going to have to do everything or nobody else will. What I think Abigail exposes in David is, David, the Lord is actually at work, but you're acting like He's not. You're impatient enough to do whatever you want to do and take your power and use it for your own advantage, but the Lord is actually at work Stop and wait for Him. She exposes the same thing in you and I. We say that we believe that God exists, but whether it's in our relationship with a spouse that is difficult, whether it's a relationship with a a hard-headed, hard-hearted child, whether it's a difficult situation at work or with in-laws, whether it's dreams that have not come to pass, ministries that have not shown fruit, we end up with functional atheism saying, well, God's not doing anything. God doesn't exist. I have to take this into my own hands. Abigail is a wonderful guide for David because she doesn't just condemn him with, David, you're an idiot. And she said she just draws his attention to David. David, fix your eyes on the personal God who is actually living and active in your life. He's going to wrap up your life. He's going to cast off your enemies. He's going to be the one to do this stuff. David, don't take this into your own hands. And so, Abigail's call to David is also a call to us. Will we fix our eyes on God's activity? And go, no, I have to see what God is doing. And I'm not going to allow my impatience to cloud my eyes. I'm not actually going to do it. And then can we become guides like Abigail? You, just like I, know lots of people that are struggling. Struggling in all sorts of different ways. Dealing with conflict. Tempted towards this functional atheism of I have to get it done. 
But can we become like Abigail? Can we become the kind of church that draws one another's eyes to, hey, the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is at work. The Lord is a defender and He's not going to let you down. The Lord is a personal God who is personally active in your life, even though it doesn't seem like it. Can we begin to give God-centered counsel like Abigail gives? Not, hey, here's some steps to do it without God, but oh, wait for the Lord and see that He will actually deliver you. I love this story because it's not just David on his own learning the lesson, but David needs community that will come alongside him. He needs a wife that will encourage him to look, draw your eyes up, David. Draw your eyes up. Because David, after the death of Nabal, is actually going to marry Abigail. He needs a wife that says, David, the Lord's at work. The Lord is a warrior. Don't forget that. And that's what you and I need. That's why... That's why we come together on Sunday mornings. That's why we gather in small groups because we together can say, hey, I know you're tempted to believe that God doesn't exist, that He doesn't care, that He's not paying attention, but we can instead draw each other's eyes up and go, oh, oh, the Lord is actually, He's going to do something. He's tying your life up in the bundle of the living. He's, he's actually tying your life up in the, in the life of His Son. And so everything He's promised to the Son, He's promised to you and He's going to do it. That's actually, that's one of the most beautiful things that a marriage can be is two people giving God-centered counsel saying, oh, the Lord is at work. You don't feel like it, but I'm going to believe for you right now. And when I don't feel it, you're going to believe it for me. And so Abigail becomes like that. And so David says, thank you. He, he, he says, may you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day. David leaves. Abigail goes back after her husband gets drunk at a party. The next day she tells him he has a stroke and later he dies. Then David marries Abigail. Eventually we'll have many, many wives, which was a bad decision. David marries Abigail and then we get to verse 26 and we see, okay, what's the fruit of this? So Abigail has come saying, David, fix your eyes on the personal God who is active in your life. And then in verse 26, we see one more time, David in, in the desert with power over Saul and we get to see what happens. So the Ziphites went to Saul at Gebeah and said, is not David hiding on the hill of Hakaliah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search for David there. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. And then David takes one of his most trusted soldiers creeps in under the cover of night while everybody is asleep. And then this soldier, his name's Abishai, said to David, this is verse 8, Today the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. This is the same thing that they said in the cave. What's David going to do? Abigail's come to him saying, the Lord's actually at work, David. What's David going to do when his soldiers say, hey, we've got the chance? This is it, David. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord Himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jugs that are near his head, and let's go. Last time they said it, and then David goes in and cuts off part of his robe because David is about to take this into his own hands. But this time, David starts saying the same kinds of thing Abigail was saying. No, the Lord's at work. The Lord's going to do this, and I'm going to let Him do it. 
This time, David has learned his lesson because he's fixed his eyes on the Lord Himself who will strike him. This time, David has changed. And the call to us is to go, hey, when these situations come, am I going to fix my eyes on the personal God who is active in these situations and not reach out and grab it on my own? Because that's the very thing that fits David for his job. The thing that makes David great at being king is his eyes are fixed on God who is actually at work in every situation. This moves David from impatience to patience. It wasn't rules and regulations that made David wait. It was actually fixing his eyes on God. The thing that moved David from fear to faith was Abigail who said, look, look at the Lord. He is actually at work in this. The thing that moved David from selfish to servant was fixing his eyes on God. And so if you are like me that can be so impatient with God, so impatient with life, things don't go faster. The call is, will we fix our eyes on God? who is living and active, who is personal with us, who is reaching down and doing activity in every situation that we find ourselves in. You see, I want the lesson that David learned. I want the lesson that David learned so that I don't walk through life impatiently clutching at things. But this is not me. This isn't me. I'm not David who just constantly says, oh, the Lord's at work, it's going to be okay. How is there good news for somebody like me who's more like Saul than like David? I want this lesson of David's, but I don't live it. You see, Christ is the one that lived the way David did, but died the way Saul deserved. Jesus is the one who knew the right, and instead of just, well, let me clutch up my own kingdom in my own way, instead, He decided to do it anyway. He is the one who is not motivated by fear and impatience, but instead steady, faithful trust in His Father. He's the one who, in the very moment of His trial, calls out to God, not saying, let me take this as my own. Let me do this in my own way. He's the one who lived the way David is supposed to, died the death the way that Saul did, so that all who trust in Him can have His record and then begin to have His Spirit to live this out. So some of you, you go, how can I know for sure that I have this? How can I know for sure that I have the record of Jesus living the way that David did, dying the way that Saul had to, so that we can have his record? The story of the Bible is that God made the world and he made it good. The story of the Bible is that God looked out on it and he said, you be little kings under me. But Adam and Eve and David and Saul and everybody after them said, no, I will live my own way, live my my own way, set up my own kingdom. The Bible says that instead of leaving us as God's enemies, living in our own kingdoms that will one day crumble and be crushed, the Bible says that God came and lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, so that all who trust in Christ, repenting of sin and trusting in Him alone, instead get this record, get the record of Christ. And so we can learn the record of David by looking at the cross and saying this is God's activity. We can learn the lesson of David by looking at our lives and go, God is personal and active in this situation and in every situation, and he will keep his promises. We can learn the lesson of David as we help one another fix our eyes on God's activity in every situation so that impatience is driven out. And we become a community in our church and in our families. 
on our blocks that have eyes to see the Lord is at work. And he's not going to let us down. We become a community where those that are struggling can lean on others who say, hey, the Lord's at work here. I know it doesn't seem like it, and I'm going to believe for you. These aren't just cheap sayings. These are, this is actually the promise of God that I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus, who said, my Father is always at work, is true. And we can call one another, hey, we can be patient. Because God is at work in every situation. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word is good news for us. We thank you that you that you call us to patience, not, not based in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ, and that you call us to fix our eyes on what you are doing and where you are active. In Jesus' name, amen.